so do you like to dress up? How many of you guys miss it? Oh, look at, look who showed up. Joel Osteen's over here. That's great. And Wanda. Hi, Wanda. That's great. In the back corner there, we got some uh, special guests. Oh, my gosh. Look at this guy. He's really handsome. Oh, my. All over the place. Look at that. Yes. Who, who is that? I don't even know. <laughs> oh, we got all kind of guests this morning. Thank you for showing up. Appreciate it. Oh, yes. Look at that. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> Uh, there's too many of me, that's for sure. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, you guys are amazing. I love it. Yes, nice, nice. Got all your uh, sleeping uh, masks on. <laughs> Holy faces. That's right. That's good. You're ready to go. Oh, my gosh. You guys are amazing. <laughs> so do you like to dress up or not, right? I mean, especially wearing... <laughs> Especially wearing a uh, holy face, right? I, uh, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm one of these that I, I like kind of dressing up, uh, but I'm liking it more and more as I get older, I guess. I don't know, maybe that's a normal thing, but I know when I was a kid, I kind of hated it uh, for the most part. But, you know, at church, you know, you go to church, right? You had to dress up. And so that was cool. And so I did that. But, you know, I went to church, you know, as a pastor and whatnot, youth pastor and all that. I mean, you wore, you always wore a tie. I mean, I didn't wear, usually wear a jacket, but I always had a tie on uh, until I got into Richland and probably the first, you know, three or four years I was there, I was wearing a tie every week and the guy that was the lead pastor there, he had a jacket every week and a tie. And so, you know, he'd been around for a while. And uh, anyway, so he, but anyway, it's, it's, you know, dressing up is kind of a cool thing. I, uh, I enjoy it. You know, and the idea though behind, you know, dressing up, we've lost that in American culture a little bit. You know, it used to be that you would always dress your very best to go to church, not because you're trying to show off, but because you're going to go worship. Jesus, right? I mean, this is why Catholic churches in part are so glamorous, especially the older Catholic churches. Uh, they were meant with beauty in mind. The idea is that when you walk in, one, it was always to make you look small, right? <laughs> to recognize that God is huge, right? And, and that's a good thing. But also it was like, no, we are not, we're sparing no expense because God is worthy of all that we have, right? Uh, you know, we have have a perspective today that you make multi-purpose buildings, right? And that kind of stuff. And you don't spend a lot of expense. You always want to kind of be frugal with how you build, you know, churches and these kind of things. But I, I think we miss something by not, you know, dressing up and not recognizing what we have. And again, I'm not saying that we need to do this every week, but uh, I, there is value in it. And the value is not to show off. The value is to say you're worth me doing something different on this day when I come to worship, that I would dress up, and usually dressing up means you're a little uncomfortable. That's okay, right? That you are willing to be a little uncomfortable because you are coming to worship your God, right? To worship the God of the universe, Jesus, right? So, so anyway, so dressing up is great. I, I, I appreciate that we started this last year in part because we're trying to do our Christmas Eve service outside, and so that doesn't isn't as conducive to dressing up, which usually in the past, that's what we've done, our Christmas Eve service. Everybody's dressed up for Christmas, and it's a great celebration, a good time. Um, and so we didn't do that last year because we were outside, and so we thought, hey, we should still get an opportunity for people to dress up. And, you know, that's why we're doing this, and uh, just thank you for, you know, participating in it, those you have, but uh, hopefully you don't feel, I'm not trying to put any guilt on you if you haven't dressed up. That's not the point. Uh, and just saying that, you know, that's why we're doing this, and make sure we have the proper focus. It's, it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about who we worship. Amen.
Do you struggle in this life? Have you ever struggled in this life? Is life hard sometimes? Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think when, again, when we're younger, you know, we have this very, oftentimes we can have a very different view depending on our upbringing. You know, I know for me, uh, growing up in the family that I did, it was pretty easy. Uh, I've, I've been blessed just beyond me. It's, I just uh, constantly, I'm like, God, why? Why do I, you know, I hear stories of other people's upbringings and stuff, and my parents are just so awesome. Uh, they were so good to me. Uh, I, you know, grew up in this healthy home, and we all have issues, <laughs> but, but that's just because we're sinful. But uh, so, you know, as a kid, you know, I grew up with this perspective that life was pretty easy, and that continued into my 20s, and, and then started to have some struggles, right? And life does that, right? You know, as you get older, even if you had a, a, an easy life growing up, at some point, it's going to get hard. And, you know, I, I know that as I've experienced hard things, you know, we, we get to experience God more, right? He shows up in those hard times. But also it creates this, I guess, tension, uh, maybe a tension that kind of Paul was talking about. Like, you know, to be here in the body is like, it's a good thing. But at the same time, it's like, this is a hard life. And I really kind of crave to be in eternity too. And so the question is, you know, you know, you know, have you experienced tough times? Have you exper experienced that tension? Do you find yourself at times kind of going, oh, man, I, I don't know if I really want to stay here. It's, the things are so hard right now, so difficult right now. I, I just, you know, I really like to have this release from this. And I'm not talking, <laughs> we're going to take our life or anything, but it's just like, you know, God, where are you, right? What, what's going on? But the fact that we even have that struggle, especially as Christians, points to something that's true. And that that's, that, that the truth is that our hope is not here, it's there. Like we are waiting for something that is better. That, that no matter how great this life is, the next life is going to be even greater. I mean, this life is going to pale in comparison, but especially when we experience the struggles, the pain, the suffering, the mourning, the challenge of this life. Then we go, yes, I want something better. I need something better. Lord, please come. Lord, come take me. Lord, destroy this evil world and let's get to the eternal kingdom where it's perfect and beautiful and powerful and wonderful and no sin and no evil. This is the good news of salvation. The good news of salvation is not just that Jesus showed up. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's not just that he rose, rose from the dead and that we can have hope to be resurrected. It's the fact that Jesus is coming back and he's going to put an end to this world. Amen. He's going to put an end to sin and to evil. And he's going to usher in this amazing eternal kingdom of perfection and goodness and beauty and love and intimacy. Amen? Amen? This is big part of what salvation is all about. Matthew chapter 24. I would encourage you to you know, spend some time this week reading uh, in light of this morning's message, both Luke chapter 21, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and... Revelation chapter 20 through 22. 
We'll be reading them out of all of those a little bit this morning, but uh, great chapters that all talk about this reality that Jesus is going to return. So Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 39. But concerning that day and hour, Jesus says, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The return of Christ, what we are hoping for, that moment when he comes and everything changes, everything ends in this world and, and the new world begins, is an imminent return. Imminent is a key word that basically means that it's about to happen, that it could happen at any moment. This perspective of the imminent return of Christ is foundational to who we are as Christians. It's a foundational truth that we need to recognize that, you know, Christ's return is not just somewhere in the future, but instead that Christ's return is imminent. It could happen today before we head home. There is nothing else that needs to happen before Jesus shows up and his return as here. This is the imminent return of Christ. This is what it means. Nothing needs to happen. And this is true both globally, but also it's true individually. Now, some kind of look back and go, well, it's been you know, a couple thousand years. <laughs> he's not back yet. So, you know, he's not going to come back probably in my lifetime and this kind of thing, you know. But we need to recognize that this imminence is not just a global imminence in the sense that he returns and ushers into the eternal kingdom, but it's an imminence in the sense that none of us knows the day of our death. And if we understand scripture, we have until that day to make our decision for the eternal kingdom or not. In that essence, the day of our death is that day when Jesus comes for us. And so we have a global perspective that Jesus' return is imminent, but we also have this very individual and personal reality that his return is imminent for us because we don't know what tomorrow brings. This imminent return of Christ should be something that, one, we are excited about, as we just talked about. If we understand the realities of this world and the struggles that are there, there should be something in us that are kind of, you know, we're excited about that. We're not like, ooh, I hope he doesn't come today. We're like, yes, come today. May it be so. I'm ready. Let's go. But it's also this imminent return of Christ should be a motivating factor for our evangelism. I mean, we're ready, but what about our neighbor? Is our neighbor ready? Is our family member ready? Our friend ready? Our coworker ready? Are we all ready? Reminds me of the song, right? I wish they'd all been ready. <clears throat> anyway, we won't go there.
The imminent return of Christ, of course, leads us to think about Jesus' return. And, and I want to highlight a couple of the essentials of Jesus' returns. The things that we have to believe, Scripture is clear on, all who are Christians should believe this. So first of all, we believe that Jesus will return at any moment, and we don't know when that's going to happen. This is a basic understanding of all evangelicals, all Christians around the globe. They should believe that Jesus is definitely going to be returning, but we don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, and he's, and it could, but it could happen at any moment. The second key essential to understanding or believing about, to believe about Jesus' return is that with Jesus comes judgment and glorification. Hell and heaven. John 5, 28 and 29 says that we will all be raised to life on that day. Some will be raised to judgment. Others will be raised to life. So these are the essentials. I know it's only two. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really all it is. The essentials to understand to be a Christian, the black and whites, if you will, is that Jesus will return at any moment, and we don't know when, and when he returns, he will bring judgment of the sinful and the evil, but he will also bring glorification of the righteous and the good and those who have surrendered their life to Jesus. That is our hope, the eternal kingdom being set up. That is the, the future that we're looking for. But let me say just a couple of words. I don't want to get into this too much about eschatology and somehow put this in its place. And eschatology is the study of the last things, if you will. So these last days. Uh, this is a popular talk, topic in Christian, the Christian realm today. Uh, and everyone, well, not everyone, many people have opinions on what that is. And, and I am not going to give you my opinion. I just want to give some cautions about our eschatology. In essence, as I've written here, to put eschatology in its place. Because there are too many in our world, in the Christian world in America, again, I think it's because we have too much time, but there are too many concerned with how and when Jesus is going to return. But we must understand that how it happens is less, way less important than the fact that it does happen. May we continue to keep our eyes and our faith in the fact that it's going to happen and not how it's going to happen. The issue is this, is what if we're wrong? I mean, I mean God forbid that there is not, uh, you know, this, this ascension of the church before tribulation comes. What are we going to do? Are we going to survive that? Will our uh, faith survive that reality? Or God forbid that there actually is a tribulation and we have to not maybe live through it, but maybe we do get escalate, you know, taken to, to heaven. What are we going to do? Is our faith going to survive it? I am reminded in this regard of the Pharisees who constantly had struggles with Jesus because he did not fit their perspective of what he was supposed to be. Their interpretation of the Messiah, Jesus didn't fit. So the question we have to keep in mind, eschatology is great, let's study it, let's understand it, let's play with it if we want to, but 
May we not put our faith in our eschatology. May we continue to put our faith in Jesus who is going to return. Next, when it happens is less important than being ready for it to happen. It is unfortunate that the Christian church, especially over the last 40 years, has embarrassed itself over and over again by making predictions about the end times. And with COVID-19 and all of the chaos in our country today, those predictions are on the rise again. Understand the statements that are made, things like, boy, we are getting close Does that mean that yesterday we were further away? I mean, I suppose in the timeline of things, maybe. Uh, I, I think we have to be very careful with what we're setting up. Is Christ's return imminent or not? Sometimes we begin to lay out in our eschatology all the things that have to happen before actually Jesus returns. Is it imminent or not? Well, it's going to happen down there. Well, I can figure it out. I got it. It's, it's going to happen when this happens. Now, Scripture does encourage us to be ready. And we need to be ready. And that we should be evaluating and paying attention to the signs of the times. But understand that tribulation is part of our world. It is constant. Whether there is a great tribulation at some point in the future or not is less important of the reality that in those tribulations we are looking to Jesus. Because he is our hope. Some are, I think, more afraid of the tribulation than they are of hell. And that's a bad spot to be in. (laughs) Hell is way worse. Speaking of hell, yeah, that's right. Sunday before Christmas Eve, or Christmas, I'm going to preach on hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're welcome. So it gives you something to talk about at Christmas, right? I mean, oh my gosh, you should have been at the church on Sunday. My pastor, he preached about hell like the week before Christmas. Seriously. Oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. Uh, yes, hell is what we have to preach out when we're talking about the imminent return of Christ. What is he coming? The keys, right? Is he's returning? We don't know when. We don't know how that's going to happen. We just know he's going to show up. And when he shows up, he brings judgment with him. He's going to judge those who are sinful, those who are evil, those who have rebelled and rejected him. So we better talk about hell at Christmas because this is key to our, the, the imminent return of Christ and our motivation for sharing the love of Jesus. If people aren't going to hell, then why are we sharing? We don't evangelize then. But if we understand that there is this reality in Scripture, then maybe that will encourage us to not only evangelize, but make sure that we're striving to live our life as best we can. Hell is God's place of punishment on all of sin and rebellion. Hell comes from a key perspectives or characteristics of God. First of all, God is holy. God is holy. That doesn't mean he's got a bunch of holes in him. Maybe he does. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't. 
He doesn't really have a body. So anyway, it doesn't mean, you know, he's holy. That means he is transcendent. He's above. He's perfect. He's beyond us. He is, he is existence. We, we spent the whole year last year talking about this as we went through Genesis. He is holy. He's perfect, sovereign. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And God is also love. He created us for intimate relationship with him. And because he's also love, he's also just. He's a God who knows what's right and knows what's wrong. And he allows us to make that free will choice. And when we do, he punishes that which is evil and he rewards that which is good. The reality is God created this world for intimate relationship with him. Anyone who chooses to reject God in that relationship has chosen to go against his creative design. And because he's a perfect and holy God, going against his perfect design means that we are by definition evil. We don't fit into that design. And so we must be dealt with. Hell is eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46 speaks to this. It's an eternal punishment. Some of us struggle accepting this reality, and I'll get into this in a moment, but there are some that are actually trying to get rid of this uh, teaching. In hell, we see described Matthew 8, 12, that they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the weeping because of the pain and the suffering that they are enduring as a result of their free will choice to reject God, but also that's not like they, have re- they, they realize the error of the ways. No, no, no. The gnashing of the teeth shows the reality that they are still rebelling against him and saying, what are you doing to me? This is not fair. I can't believe you're doing this. And they're still fighting back at God. This is how hell is described. It's also described in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 as separation from God. And then finally, and I want to read this passage. Uh, it, it's hard to, uh, again, this is, I know it's Christmas and we're all happy and everything's joy, joy, joy. But, you know, we're going to do this anyway. Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to read a passage here. <clears throat> Revelation 14, 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Hell is the place where God's wrath is poured out. Again, we struggle with this teaching. It's very rarely taught or preached about because it doesn't fit into our culture. And so we see in even our sub-Christian culture that there are progressive theologians that are attempting to eliminate hell. 
They are beginning to teach and have been for some time universalism, or at the very least, annihilationism. Universalism, basically, there is no hell. We all end up in heaven somehow, some way. Annihilationism, those who don't go to heaven just get annihilated or destroyed completely. They don't, further, they don't exist anymore. So heaven is, or hell is not eternal. It's just for a moment you get punished and then you're gone. Both of these perspectives come from a definition of the love of God that is skewed by our cultural perspective of love. They want the love of God to be warm and fuzzy. They want the love of God to not have a justice to it. They want the love of God to not include any kind of discipline or punishment. In their mind, to love means that you're tolerant. To love means that you never discipline. I mean, who are you to discipline? I mean, you're just as sinful, so why would you? But that's the point. God is perfect. He is holy. He is the only one who truly and honestly and eternally has the capability and the perfection to be able to be the judger of all sin. Many struggle to accept this holiness of God. Again, we want a kinder and gentler God. One that, you know, will kind of deal with us in in softer tones and, and be easier to us. But understand that that softer tone, that intimate love relationship, the, the romance, the comfort, the gentleness, the, the goodness of God comes for those who bow their knee to Jesus as Lord. We as believers get to receive that side of God, if you will. But those who reject God never will get to enjoy that. The truth is, is that God's love demands that all evil be punished. If God really loves us, then that means he's going to create a space for us where we no longer have to deal with sin and evil in our world. If God allowed uh, evil to continue to go unpunished for all of eternity, then that would not be a loving God. That would be a God who is sick and twisted and just loves to see his people continue to suffer. But we have a God that says, no, I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to allow people to choose, freely choose on their own. If they want to receive me or to reject me, if they reject me, eventually at some point, all sin and evil will be punished and all righteous and good will be rewarded in a space that is beautiful and loving and intimate and sin-free, which brings us to the next point, glorification of righteousness. Because in order to have heaven, you have to have hell. We've seen hell, so now that means we get to go to heaven now, right? So let's spend some time in heaven. Heaven is God's reward to all righteousness and to all who have surrendered to Jesus as Lord. 
We see that God is a relational God. We notice this right away in Genesis chapter 1, that we have a God who is not only eternally, uh, self-existently in relationship with himself, but he has created us to be in relationship with him too. We have a God who is relational. He has created us for intimate relationship with him. And we also have a God who is good. It's not a painful relationship with him. It's a good relationship. He wants to bless us. He has good things for us. He wants to provide for us. He has all of this amazing stuff for him. He's for us. He's always does what's right. And he's always drawing us in to join him in doing that right. We have a God who is good. And we also have a God who is gracious and merciful. Who forgives us. That when we bow our knee to Jesus as Lord, he receives us. When we repent, he forgives us. Amazing. Not only is this God holy and all-powerful and a just God, but he's a God who loves and who's gracious and who is merciful, who is looking for forgiveness, is ready to forgive. In the moment that we bow our knee and say, Lord, I'm sorry, he's there and he's forgiven us and he takes that sin and he puts it as far as the east is from the west. Heaven is the eternal kingdom. Sometimes we can get a little mixed up by these words heaven. You know, and, you know, is heaven just like this, you know, uh, you know, floating city somewhere, right, in the sky that we just haven't found yet, right? You know, I just haven't flown by it yet with one of our jets or maybe a little higher than that or lower than that. You know, maybe it's around by fog. Maybe it's like the North Pole, right? You can only see it if you have the reindeer with you or something. I don't know. But heaven, heaven is not this ethereal kind of place. Heaven is the eternal kingdom of God. It's, it's a city. It's the place where we get to go and to, to be with him. But it's more than just a place that we get to go. It's a place that is here. Scripture teaches this reality. Jesus showed up. He says, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And it continues to be here and at hand. As we pray, you know, the, the prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It, it, you know, the eternal kingdom, heaven, is the place where God rules. You rule, God. Yeah. God is sovereign. He's in control. That's the place of heaven. And so that reality happens even in our own life. When we bow to him as Lord and say, Lord, I'm yours. We can experience pieces of heaven even now. It's not a specific place. It's every place where he rules. And that can be certainly in our own hearts. Of course, we only get to experience some of it now. And so the hope is still for that full experience when Jesus returns. When that moment he comes through the clouds and he shows up and says, here I am. We can get excited because he, we are going to get to experience the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God forever and its fullness without the struggle of sin and pain and fighting, and wrestling. 
Now we need to read another passage from Revelations 21 because Revelation is not just about judgment. It's also about glorification. So uh, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Interesting, the bride, the city is called the bride of Christ. I'm going to expand here a little bit. I just came to me, but this reality that I just talked about, how individually we can experience the eternal kingdom of God in our own heart when we surrender. Interesting that now the city of God in the future is described as the bride of Christ. Maybe it's not literally a city so much as maybe it's the city of our hearts that individually us as a church, us as the church universal has come together and we're the ones who are descending, right? It's, it's, it's individual people instead of an actual literal city. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's still a beautiful thing. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying in verse three, behold, the the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Hallelujah. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is what we look forward to. We are obviously not in the eternal kingdom today. We are still hoping for that. We can experience some of that eternal kingdom, certainly today, but we are not experiencing the fullness until we get to that point. Interesting that Revelation goes on and describes the eternal kingdom as a garden. And there's this sense, and if you will notice in Revelation, actually, you need to know the Old Testament in order to understand Revelation, because Revelation has got all of this imagery that it's pulling from the Old Testament. And so here at the end, we go back to the garden. We started with the garden where creation began, and now at the end, we're back to our garden again. This perfect place without pain, without suffering, without evil or sin. This is what we are looking forward to. What Adam and Eve experienced before sin came into the world is what we're going to look forward to in the future, where it's this perfect place. Again, without sin, we will no longer fear sin. All of the evil things that have been done to us in this world will never happen to us in that world. We never have to fear. Somehow evil is going to show up and hurt us. But we also understand this, we no longer have to fight the evil within. Sinful nature will be removed from us. Some people struggle with this concept of free will. Like, wait a second, I mean, can I still choose to sin in heaven? No, you can't. And this is why why I believe, and again, believe it or not, this is a debate, but uh, this is why I believe that you cannot sin in heaven is because that's our hope. We have been fighting with sin our whole lives, individually, all of our existence, corporately as humanity. Our hope is that someday that struggle will be over. That the things that we want to do, we will do. And the things that we don't want to do, we won't do. Why? Because sinful nature will be finally removed. And we will get 
the culmination of the free will choice that we made to surrender our lives to Jesus. I think when we get to eternity, free will will be done. It'll have played its role. And we will get to enjoy for the rest of eternity the daily, every moment choice to listen and to follow and do exactly what we see Jesus doing. Amazing. It's our hope. It's eternity. Ah, so beautiful. Are you excited? <laughs> I hope you are. I know when I was a kid, right? You know, it's like, God, you know, don't, Jesus, don't come back yet. I got some things I got to do first, right? <laughs> you know, I get married, you know, maybe have a kid or two and grandkids, you know, and right? Maybe, maybe you've been there. <laughs> but are you excited, right? Are you excited. It, it, it could happen today. That'd be awesome, right? I mean, are you excited to spend eternity with him? Sometimes we kind of go, yeah, you know, we have, it depends on our image of heaven, right? Sometimes we're like, ah, oh, I just really don't want to be playing a harp floating around a cloud the rest of eternity. That just <laughs> not sound like my wife loves that one. She, that's, that's her vision of heaven. Well, it was for a long time, not anymore. So I've, I've, teached, I've teached her. <clears throat> anyway. So we can sometimes think that this world has, you know, what this world has to offer is, is greater, right? You know, like, oh, there's still some things I want to do here. No, no, no. Eternity is way better. We, you know, it, it, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of description of it, right? I mean, so we're kind of left to our imagination, but that's okay because it's beyond our imagination. Just like the mystery of God is beyond what we can ever fully understand, so eternity, the eternal kingdom is beyond what we can ever imagine. It is so much better than anything that this world has to offer, anything that we can come up with our mind of, oh, maybe that's what it's like. No, 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 it's better than that. It is beyond expectation. We will not be disappointed, and we will get to exist there for all eternity in perfect intimacy with Jesus, our Savior, and with each other. What a great day that'll be. Amen. Amen. Do you feel the urgency to share this great news? Uh Right? Do you feel the urgency? Jesus' return is imminent. It could happen today or tomorrow. Who have you not told that you need to tell? Who does not know that needs to hear? See, this motivates us. Our love for Jesus and knowing that that, that he desires that none should perish. And so, yeah, maybe it seems like it's taking a long time, but he's like, no, I want some more. Is that your perspective? Do you want some more to get in? Do you have that urgency, that sense of, wait, I can't wait till tomorrow to share this message. I need to share it now. God has inspired me. He's given me the words. He's highlighted the individual. I need to speak it and not wait. Do you feel the urgency? Jesus indeed may return today. Are you ready? How about your neighbor? All right, worship team, come on up. It's been fun singing Christmas songs, huh? Okay, I think we got another one or two left uh, Christmas songs, yeah. All right, one more passage to share here. Actually, I got another one after this, but I'll, that'll be later, but before I'm done here. Jude chapter 1, 
17 to 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even garments stained by the flesh. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the imminent return of Christ, which we all place our hope in. Lord, we don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen today. And so we ask that you would help us, first of all, to be ready, Lord, that we would be uh, examining our lives each day, that we would wake up recognizing that this may be the day, and so that you would be the priority, that our eyes would be on you. But Lord, we also ask that this imminent return of Christ, knowing that he could come back today, that, we would, that, that would motivate our evangelism as well. Lord, we have a story to tell. It's not our story. It's not because we're great. We're actually sinful beings just like the rest of creation. Yet we have bowed our knee to Jesus as Lord. And so we now have hope for eternity, a hope that is meant to be shared with the world. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to have eyes to see those who are ready and listening and open to your word, who are ready to make that decision, or maybe someday we'll be ready. And give us the words and give us the courage to speak and to speak now, not waiting for tomorrow, thinking that, oh, we've got time. No, Lord, help us to have that sense of urgency in sharing your love with our friends and with our family. And then, Lord, finally, I pray that you would make us excited, more and more excited for eternity, not only as this world becomes more difficult and divisive and filled with sin and pain and suffering, but also, Lord, that we get more and more excited about what is to come, where we are going to be and exist for all eternity. And may Revelation 22 be that final chapter, that final perspective to go with today to help us to remember this reality. Lord, preach your word to these people in this moment right now. Revelations 22. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what soon, what must soon take place. And behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of his book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy and this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Because Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have right, the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And then Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of his prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which he descri are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen, Amen. and hallelujah, and God is good, and Jesus come. Thank you, church. Have a great Sunday, and Merry Christmas. We'll see you, many, hopefully many of you, on Christmas Eve, and uh, yeah, have a great day. Thank Amen. you.